0: When I first started thinking about making a podcast that chronicled Asian American stereotypes, the first guest I had in mind was not even Asian. He was an American guy named Andy Ricker. He's the chef and owner of Pock Pock restaurants in Portland, New York, and Los Angeles. Andy has been on Anthony Bourdain's No Reservations and Parts Unknown, and there's a really great documentary by Vice all about what inspired Andy to become this Northern Thai cuisine specialist. I wanted to talk to Andy because I really respected the fact that he is a non-Asian person who has taken the time to learn, understand, and advocate for a cuisine that he didn't grow up with. And I compare that to what's happening elsewhere in mainstream culture, where there is appropriation of Asian culture, Asian cuisine. And I'll point quickly to a Bon Appetit video that recently featured a white chef in Philly who has a restaurant that focuses on Vietnamese pho. Now, in this video, the chef says, you're not supposed to put so-and-so condiments, I believe it's sriracha, into your pho. And the title of the video definitively said this is how you're supposed to eat pho. Unsurprisingly, the Vietnamese and Asian audience, the viewers, were up in arms about this and were very upset. It felt like out of all the Vietnamese restaurants and the chef owners of those businesses, why on earth would you talk to an outsider, essentially, about this typical traditional noodle dish that's like a, a it's a national dish of Vietnam? I relate this back to what Andy Ricker is doing with Pak Pak and promoting Northern Thai cuisine because There is a difference between telling someone how something is, quote, supposed to be done and showing a deep interest and sharing knowledge in a particular subject, especially when it's a subject that comes from a culture that's not your own. With that in mind, here's my interview with Andy Ricker, and I hope it inspires you to consider both sides of the story, and if you happen to be in one of the cities where his restaurants are, that you check them out for yourself.
1: The first thing that attracted me to Thailand was not the food, it was, you know, it was the 80s. I was young. Southeast Asia was a place that a lot of backpackers were going through because it was an easy place to travel. It was inexpensive. It was uh, exotic to us. There were beaches, there were other people traveling. It was a safe way to get a glimpse into another culture. I, I think Thailand, has always been an easy place to travel for Westerners, especially in comparison to places like say Vietnam or or China.
0: Really how so
1: the the infrastructure, you know, even since the eighties it was you could get around pretty easily. Thai people are very accommodating. Like they're very you know, their their culture is a welcoming culture. And so at least in the early days, travelers coming through that had money and were showing interest and respect uh, were, were welcomed. I don't know that that's exactly true anymore. <laughs> I don't, it, not to the extent that it used to be. I think there's been a bit of culture fatigue on, on the part of ties with the you know, massive influx of Western travelers. And, you know, to be honest, the Chinese travelers who go through Thailand have caused a bit of a ruckus there. The influx of Chinese tourism in Thailand has a lot to do with a couple of things. One which is the the, exist, the sudden existence of a middle and upper middle class in China uh, with money to spare and they want to travel mm-hmm. and um, Thailand's close and it's exotic and interesting. There's some connections. Uh, often there's a lot of Chinese folks who have relatives in Thailand that go back a long way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other thing is a movie called Lost in Thailand that came out in China. It was like one of the biggest movies ever. It was kind of like Idiot Abroad type thing. Idiot meets Buddy on train. They get inter, interwoven into a into a conflict with, with Thai gangsters. And it was a comedy. The guy who was the actor and it's a very famous comedian there. And uh, it was this massive hit there. And, you know, so there was this, all this interest in coming to Thailand. You know, Thailand was just a very easy place to be. Like I said, inexpensive, food was delicious. The, um, you know, we had these incredible beaches that at the time were mostly untouched. Uh, you, know, you kind of got to... It's
0: not like that anymore. No, it really right? isn't.
1: I mean, a good thing A good thing never lasts. So, you know, you could go to, say, Koh Samui back then, which is now this, you know, this, this international resort destination that's got high-rise hotels on and stuff, but when I, the first time I went there it was bamboo beach bungalows and people still fishing off the beach and you could stay in a bungalow for $3 right on the beach and seafood was cheap and plentiful it was fun, and that was my first connection with, with Thailand. The only frame of reference I had for Thai food was what I'd had in the United States and what was being sold in the bungalows which typically was pretty simple stuff and at this point uh, thai restaurant owners and resort owners had identified what falang <laughs> likes to eat, which was, you know, the typical tom kha gai, yeah. tom yum, that sort of thing. Fried fish with three flavor sauce. They'd already identified what we liked and what we didn't like. And so, menus that catered, you know, places that had menus that catered to, to foreign travelers typically had that kind of thing. So there were things that you recognized, right? I think the very first thing I ever ate in Thailand was a green curry, chicken green curry, because that's what I recognized. I didn't have any frame of reference for anything else that was going on, right? So I just went with what I knew beginning of the understanding once once I was introduced to other dishes that were outside of what I'd experienced in the States, that, that I started to realize how deep and wide Thai cuisine was and the first time around, no, I just ate you know, I was at bungalows I wasn't searching food out, I wasn't there for the food
0: right, you didn't yeah. have like a like a it wasn't motive my, it wasn't
1: my raison d'etre, I was about you know, smoking weed and chasing girls and going mm-hmm. swimming, <laughs> going snorkeling and going on to the next place right, you know I was definitely eating food, but it wasn't It wasn't about food.
0: Andy and I talked a little bit more about what brought him back to Thailand and his increasing interest in northern Thai cuisine. What's closely related to food is culture. Of course, I was interested in Andy's adoption of Thai culture in addition to the cuisine. So here is a section about Andy learning Thai.
1: I went there in the 80s, I learned how to say hello and thank you. Basically, that was it.
0: Is
1: it um, Sawadee? Yeah, <laughs> you could <use laughs> I would say you'd say sawadee Ka, right? Oh, for, for man and woman. woman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kap, kapkun ka. You know, that that kind of, like, thank you. That's basically all you learned. That's all you needed. Just uh, In most
0: countries. Most like, countries, yeah. yeah. And
1: sorry. Yeah. Sorry I don't speak. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, but wow. when I went
1: back in the 90s, I actually... Uh, got interested. It took. I think it, it. I didn't start learning right away. It took a, another couple of trips for me to start really trying to learn to speak.
0: Was it intentional? Like you were like, I want to learn how to. Yeah. I mean, or
1: absolutely. Just... No. I, I went and I went to a Thai language school and got a tutor and tried. You know, tried to learn. It was. It was kind of futile though because by the time I started learning Thai, I was in my you know, late 30s and my brain had already ossified and it wasn't absorbing stuff very well. The stuff that I was interested in, though, I could, I could retain. So food was something I could retain. You know, we'd have these language lessons, and I'd sit there, and, you know, she says, she'd say, well, make, make a sentence using these words. And I'd always make a sentence about food, and then we'd digress into a conversation about food. In English? Or in
0: English? In, in
1: English, and, <laughs> and try, she'd try to keep it on point, but we were both really liked food a lot, so we ended up talking about food. So that was, you know, that only took me so far... And I was kind of left on my own after I did that a couple times, and then I just started trying to learn by myself, talking to friends, going to, going to the market. Uh, I'm still pathetic. Like I'm conversational, but I'm not fluent by any means. So.
0: You could, could have fooled me. I okay. couldn't tell you.
1: I, I, I've been told that I that I have, uh, that I that I say things correctly. It's just that I I can't say enough things. <laughs> I have Currently. enough my vocabulary stinks.
0: Can you write and oh, read no. it? Oh,
1: no, no, I cannot. Okay,
0: so no. it's, yeah, that, that's how I am with Chinese. Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, you know, there's there's two ways to learn a language, and one is phonetic, right? And that's how most people end up learning a, a new language is phonetic. And then there's doing it the right way, which is learning to read and write it. And that's, that's and the like, best like way. Like really
0: understanding sentence so you structure. Underst-
1: <laughs> it, yeah, so it, it makes you, like, So as long as you learn a language phonetically, you're still thinking in your native language and then translating in your head, pretty much, because that's all you got. you got words, and you have to connect them with with thought. Right. Whereas if you've learned to read and write and you understand the structure and and how the language actually works, then you can actually think in that language (laughs) rather than think in your native language. So uh, I'm still thinking in English and trying to translate it into Thai to this day.
0: Hey, Andy. What do Thai people think about you cooking their food?
1: It depends. I mean, it depends on the person. A long time ago, it was it was shocking to some people. Now, now these days, it's not so shocking. I think that um, you know the internet has connected the world in such a way that that you know, and, and Thailand's super connected. Right? Huh. They're aware of what's going on in the Western world. Um, when I first did it, yeah, people were like really. I'm like well you know first of all they want to know can i actually eat the food or not because it's, it's so spicy <laughs> well it's, it's not just spicy it's you know there's flavor profiles in there that typically westerners are not that keen on you know f- you know fermented fish funky bamboo shoots very you know that those really funky powerful flavors that we are are not that fond of in the west 25 years ago, when, when you referred to America, more people look like me than, than look like you, right? It's not as white as it used to be. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. I don't, I don't know really, really know how to put it any other way. Um, we're a much more, more diverse culture, and we're, you know, we're into uh, a time where the folks like you who were born and raised here, whose parents may have been immigrants,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and there's, there's a lot of folks who, are, who grew up as, as you did with one foot in uh, their parents' culture and another foot in the American culture. So, of course, tastes have changed. People's idea of what is good and what's not good have changed. You know, it's, to me, uh, your average college kid isn't, like, going down to McDonald's or the pizza joint now. They're, like, looking for that new Korean fried chicken joint, right? also
0: learning to cook because cooking is cool Right. now,
1: cooking is cool, if it ever was cool. Uh, it's definitely cool now, kinda, um, or at least restaurants are cool, at least food is cool. It's, yeah, it's just different, we live in a different world now. You know, there's, there's a lot of old prejudice that, that are still there. But we have some bad hombres here and we're gonna get them out. But, you know, I think in general Americans are more accepting of, of other cultures' food now. I mean, Bend. basically it was a roasted chicken and papaya salad joint. That was, the, that was the Isan style.
0: And people were?
1: People were very accepting of it. It's, I think the common misconception is that American people are not able to or, or don't understand Asian cuisines. And I think that depends on how it's presented. If you, you know, go to a typical Chinese restaurant and they say salt, pepper, squid, if you've never had salt, pepper, squid before, you have no idea what you're going to get, right? There's no way of knowing how do they cook it. Is it deep fried? Is it stir fried? What does the salt and pepper come in? What, what else is in the dish? Do they just give you some squid and give you some salt and pepper? Mm-hmm. There's no way of knowing. And, you know, I realized this pretty early on that if I wanted to sell Isan-style papaya salad, I couldn't just say Isan-style papaya salad. Right? I had to explain to them what was in it. So I think put it on the menu. Right. So you put it on the menu, and they can look at it, and, and it, it tells them something about the dish before they order it. And then you can further explain it. At this point, it's starting to be unnecessary. When we opened in LA, I kinda, we, you know, we put the menu together. We just used the same menu we used in Portland, tweaked a little bit for the LA market as far as dishes that we were selling. But I left all the language on there explaining what each thing was. Right. And you know, one of the biggest criticisms we received was like, you know, how dare you? We've we've had Thai food in LA for forty years. That's really that's kind of uh, insulting. insulting. that you're explaining these dishes to us on the menu. And I was like, heard that, and I took the descriptions off. And you know, it's just different different demographic in LA. Whereas in Portland, a lot of folks
0: not asian whereas in la there are more asian There's more
1: asian folks and there's there people that live there who aren't asian have been exposed to asian cooking for much longer than they have been in portland like much longer even well, in new york in certain cases so it's months. yeah let
0: you know i mean well. for
1: instance like in, in uh, you know in la we sell when we put steamed steamed whole fish on the menu We sell it like hotcakes people love it
0: with the head on? Yeah, head
1: on, tail on, fin on. Nice. Everything. And, I mean, I love fish like this. The best way to eat fish is mm-hmm. steamed fish. It's beautiful. You get a nice fish, you steam it, you don't, you don't obfuscate the flavor with you know flour and deep fat frying oil, and you, you, you taste the fish. And if it's a good fish, it's delicious and sweet and tender. And in L.A., people get it. And in Portland, we put steamed fish on the menu, and we'll sell one steamed fish for every 10 deep fried fish that we serve. Or grilled, hmm. and in New York, hard for us to do steamed fish here because we don't have the stove space. But when we do, same kind of kind of the same story. We sell a lot less here than we do in LA. So what
0: drew you to Sunset Park? Was it location? Was it just like? Do you f- feel comfortable around like? I guess Asian people.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let's get right to the uncomfortable question. So the reason that I uh, that I moved to Sunset Park is because you know when I f- I had been living in uh, New York for a couple of years and I'd moved like five times. I was looking for new. I, be- I was living in the near the Brooklyn Navy Yard in Wallabout, and I was like, geez, I- I'm you know there's just nothing here at all, right? What's well, the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Yeah, it's starting to it was starting to grow now, but that whole neighborhood around there is is kind of, hasn't grown with, you know... Much force. Much force. So um, what I found myself doing is on the weekends, I would go, I would end up in Sunset Park because, it, you know, I could get there on, you know, pretty easily. Yeah, I love going to Chinatown. Whatever city, I mean, I always go to Chinatown because I find the, the A, I love the food. B, I find that... Um, it's all there's always something interesting going on. It's you get to see a peak, a peak at um, several different cultures. So, uh, for instance, the Manhattan Chinatown is, is and has been primarily Cantonese. Am I right about that? Mm-hmm. When you go out to Sunset Park, the Fujian have have been kind of the dominant culture there. I think yeah. it may be changing now. And if you go out to uh, Flushing, it's, it's different out there. So. Um, I love going to the markets because the markets have the food that I need to make the food that I make. Mm-hmm. So it's always been like interesting to me to go to Chinatown for those reasons. You know, Sunset Park is actually relatively inexpensive to live in. Um, and it was close. Like, I could get up in the morning and go to Fei Long Market and get the stuff I needed for the rest. So that was a plus. Plus, I just liked it there. It's quiet. It's a fun neighborhood to walk around if you walk a few blocks the other direction down to fifth avenue now you're in the hispanic area and there's you know peruvian pollo a la brasa and oaxacan tacos etc 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 on the other side of it so if you're into food sunset park is awesome and it turned out that real estate was relatively inexpensive for new york so i bought an apartment there for less than i could have bought an apartment in portland to be honest with you yeah all made why, sense that's yeah. why i'm there yeah. You know, just recently, I think it was about six months ago, there was an article in the New York Times about how, you know, the the real estate market in Brooklyn was over. The neighborhoods, Greenpoint and, yeah, and Williamsburg and all that stuff are just, it's like being in Manhattan. So here's the top six neighborhoods that are up and coming, and number one on the list is Sunset Park. Like, well, there you go. Yep. This, This is something, if somebody's listening to this, could go, well, you know, it's gentrification. This is the beginning of gentrification. Right. And, you know, I, I have a hard time arguing that. I, you know, I don't know what's going to happen when, you know, all the folks who are living in Park Slope move to Sunset, move to Sunset Park. Because they're because priced they kind out. Of, <laughs> because they're priced out, and there's these amazing apartment buildings in Sunset Park. You know, we already have our first hipster coffee shop. Oh, right next do? To, yeah, it's there. What nice folks called? running it. Is it good? Sun House, yeah, it's good. It, I, I can't really call it hipster. It's a family-run place. White guy with his Korean wife, and they're, but they're, you know, they're doing third wave coffee. And to be honest with you, I like it. I mean, I like good coffee. Yeah. Seriously. But that is usually, that's a typical sign that gentrification is coming. But another thing to remember is that Sunset Park started out as a Scandinavian neighborhood, right? I did not know that. I live in what's called a Finnish co op, the Finns. From Finland came to Brooklyn to work in the Brooklyn Navy Yards to build ships around the turn of the century, late teens, twenties, and that sort of thing. They started building buildings around there, so they were the first co-ops in New York, which make probably making the first co-ops in America. They, they were, it was Scandinavian neighborhood until until I, at some point, and then it became a Hispanic neighborhood, uh, and now and then the Chinese started moving in, the the part of. Sunset Park I'm in is almost all Chinese. Yeah. Like almost all Chinese. There's almost no Scandinavian people left there at all. It's waves, man. New York is like that. There's wave upon wave of immigration. a neighborhood becomes something. It becomes something else. What wave is gentrification? Because obviously the, the Chinese who came in hadn't had enough money to buy up all the property there from the Scandinavians.
0: They band together. The, yeah. They pulled their... Families pool their money together sure. to buy buildings. That's, right. That's where I realized that was yeah. like a very Chinese thing to do. So
1: is that gentrification? Like, I would argue it's not gentrification. It's just changing of the guards. Is the next wave coming through, is that going to be gentrification? Very well might be.
0: Well, if the guard is wealthy and white, then they call it gentrification.
1: True. Right. Like and if yeah. Gets, and, but, and, but if that's the case, then... then I'm a gentrifier, because relatively speaking, I'm wealthy and I'm white, so I'm gentrifying. And it, it's, a re- it's a really uncomfortable place to be, like, shit, I'm a gentrifier, that sucks.
0: I feel like you've adopted yes. Thai cuisine, Thai culture, or it's adopted you?
1: I don't think that either is necessarily true. I'm, st- I'm not Thai. You know, I know people, white people who live in Thailand have lived there. I know this one guy has lived there since 1969. Completely fluent. Has very influential friends. He-, he has a better understanding of Thai culture than than I do by a way long shot. But he's still, you know, he's never going to be Thai. He's never going to be Thai. He's American.
0: So- Bad thing or sad thing? Or no,
1: I, I think it's something you come to Buddha about. I, I'm not sure. He, this guy might have become. A, you can You can actually become a citizen of Thailand. Do it's the complicated. Thai. There's, there's a lot of stuff that you have to do. It has to do with uh, living there for a certain amount of time. You have to speak the language. You have to take tests in Thai. So it's like a
0: citizenship test, like, yeah. like in, in the Anywhere.
1: States? Anywhere. Yeah, it, it's not easy to get. It's pretty difficult to get. Um, a lot of people just don't bother with it because it's so complicated. And, crazy but um even if he were a citizen he'll never be looked on as Thai by the Thai people
0: one last question you're not gonna like it okay how does your girlfriend's family feel about her dating a non-Thai person
1: um well uh first of all my girlfriend is 40 years old okay. so she's she's uh, and she's pretty independent and she comes from a rural family uh Parents are rice farmers, and um, they're very quiet people. They call kiai, shy people, and put um, me gang that don't don't speak.
0: They don't speak English. No,
1: they, uh, oh, they definitely don't speak English. They barely speak Thai. They huh. speak Northern Thai, which is okay. a different different language, basically. There, there's not, there's no active kind of like, what the hell are you doing with the Falang? Uh It's more of kind of, it's kind of like you know. Okay. Kind of a quiet acceptance. A lot of folks, rural folks, if their daughter or son ends up with a foreigner, it could be a good thing for the family, especially if that said foreigner is a good person and, and happens to have enough money to support their, their, their daughter and potentially their grandchildren and, and potentially them in the long run. It's, it's not a bad thing. And there's nothing, you know, it's just a cultural thing. That's the way it is. It's the same thing as expected of a Thai guy who marries a Thai woman.
0: any advice for others who might feel like they're walking between two cultures
1: tread carefully be extremely careful about what you think you know about it and uh, be careful about what you say remain a student there's good and bad to everything right there's great things about the thai culture and there's not so great things about the thai culture i've feel like for me at least i'm never going to fully understand what's going on <laughs> so like i have to be very general like
0: politically or socially politically
1: socially culturally if you grow up in a culture there are unspoken things that are just that just are it's something that you can't learn in a book right you have to experience it to kind of get it and to get your understanding of it right there is no exact sort of thing right it's just a
0: a feeling it's a
1: feeling so you just have to in, in my opinion you just have to kind of try to learn as, as best you can and try not to fuck it up <laughs> try not to stick your foot in your mouth or do something stupid you know and that's really hard to do it's very very difficult to do so but
0: worth
1: it. it it'll make it makes a better world when when people you know try to have a better understanding of each other that's for sure Thank you. you bet